Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, son of Nahor? They said, We do. He said to them, Is it well with him? Yes, they replied, And here is his daughter Rachel coming with his sheep. He said, Look, it is still broad daylight. It is not time for the animals to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she kept them. Now when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of his mother's brother Laban, and the sheep of his mother's brother Laban, Jacob went and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. When Laban heard the news about his sister's son, Jacob, he ran to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. You may be seated, but I'm going to keep going. <laughs> then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your, shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were lovely, and Rachel was graceful and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her maid. When morning came, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, This is not done in our country. Giving the younger before the firstborn, complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed his week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as a wife. This is the word of life. Okay, I cut off the part at the end about all the babies that were born to Leah, but not Rachel. That's the next part of the story. So this Jacob, this is the grandson of the little boy who was in the story last week who was on the brink of being sacrificed until God said to Abraham, no, no, you don't need to sacrifice your son. So Jacob, remember, is the twin brother of Esau. They did not get along so well. Jacob, the name means the grabber. And you know that Esau was born first, and Jacob was told to be born grasping the heel of his brother, as if to say, get back in here, I want to be the firstborn. No matter how strong a baby is, that's not going to work. So Jacob always had to live with the fact that he was the secondborn, Esau was the firstborn, and Esau would reap the benefits always of having been the firstborn son. 
Jacob was very jealous of that. I'm really condensing the story down and leaving a whole lot of stuff out. But Jacob, at some point, tricked Esau. I mean, he tricked Oh, I'm condensing so much that I'm changing all the characters. He tricked his father, who by this time was very old and mostly blind. And we learn in the story that Esau was a hairy person. He had a lot of arm hair, and Jacob did not. So the way we did it in fourth grade Sunday school when I was in fourth grade, and Brenda Reed was our teacher. Um, she was 21 at the time. She had masking tape and cotton balls for us, and Mitchell Mason was Jacob. Mitchell Mason was one of my little buddies, and he wrapped his arms in masking tape, and he stuck them all over with cotton balls, and he walked up to the kid who was playing the father and said, Father, I am here. I'm here for my blessing. And so this pretend blind kid reached out and said, I can feel your cotton balls, therefore I know that <laughs> it's Esau. I know that you have, and in the Bible, it's animal fur that Jacob dressed up in. Um, I know that you're my firstborn son. Here, you have my blessing. Basically, you get the inheritance. And then Jacob felt very satisfied and left the tent, and Esau found out about it and said, I will kill him. I will kill him. So their mother pulled Jacob aside and said, I suggest you leave town. So we meet up with him after he has way left town, and he has gone way up north to where his uncle, his mother's brother, lives, Uncle Laban. And mom suggests, why don't you marry a nice girl from Laban's family? So Jacob meets Rachel at a well. Wells were significant meeting places for men and women in the Bible. The fact that Jacob removed this big stone showed that he was very strong, for one, but also that he wasn't afraid to violate customs for his own needs. This was kind of the communal well, and all the shepherds that were using the well were supposed to be there at the same time to water the flock. They all removed the stone together, and the flock all got an equitable amount of water. It was not done for one person to just slide the top off and get some. But Jacob broke with that tradition and probably was too impatient and too selfish, and maybe he wanted to impress Rachel with his big, strong arms uh, in removing that stone, too. Jacob is very glad to see Rachel. He falls on her neck and weeps, and then he weeps when he sees Laban. There's a lot of weeping going on, and remember in this time and in history and in this part of the world, there was no taboo on men crying. There was weeping and wailing and weeping and wailing going on, and Jacob was probably just so relieved to know that he had arrived at his destination. He had found his cousin, he had found his uncle, and he had found a place to stay where he could rest and he could be safe from everything, including his potentially murderous, vengeful brother Esau. He was probably also relieved to see how beautiful Rachel was, since she was on his list of things to find. If you go and see that all the women are not so much to look at, and you think, well, rats, I've got to find my wife out of this crew, um, <clears throat> that would be disappointing. But he was certainly not disappointed in Rachel, and we think she was not disappointed in seeing him. So we're marrying our cousin here. When we read stories like this, we have to remember the cultural context was completely different 
thousands of years ago. We have to accept that in that time it was common or customary for cousins to marry. The idea was you keep it all under the same umbrella, keep the clan together, uh, keep the tribe together, and have as many babies as possible so that your clan can start growing larger. And that's part of the acceptance of these two handmaidens that got involved. Um, it was acceptable to have a handmaiden with whom your husband could create babies so that you would have more babies. And if your handmaiden had the babies, they qualified as your baby. Makes sense, right? Okay. So we have to just leave our cultural taboo ideas at the door when we read the story and get over the, ooh, marrying your cousin, ooh, um, marrying within your family. A good quote that I read, but I guess sin is everywhere and you can't trust what you read. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to go with it because I like it. Walter Russell Bowie says, desert blood stands for desert values. The values of Yahwism are and must remain dominant in Israel's religion and culture. So these people value the same things, family, love, loyalty, trust, and hospitality. But what gets into this story and makes it stand scandalous is the wiliness of the two men in the story. They are both sly foxes, clever and cunning and maybe a little bit selfish. And the main fox is outfoxed by the new on the scene fox. So Jacob agrees to work seven years for Rachel and the Bible says that it went like that because he was so excited to marry her. But it's only on the morning after the wedding that he realizes he's been given Leah instead of Rachel. I don't know if you're like me, but does anybody read this story without asking him or herself, how could you not notice? <laughs> how could you not know that you had the older one instead of the younger one? Don't get nervous, but I do want to talk about this a little bit. <laughs> we have to leave our suppositions and our, our views of what a wedding looks like at the door also. This was not the time when to have a wedding, you, you got to the church at two and you had about two hours of photographs and then you had the ceremony at four and uh, then you had more photographs and then you had a reception and then you went home and then it was your wedding night. Um, it was very much in the tradition of the bride does not see the groom before the wedding. Evidently the bride, the groom did not see the bride until the next day in this case. <laughs> but the week of feasting kind of happened after that first night. So everything kind of happens with what happens after it gets dark. So there was probably reveling taking place. There were probably fermented beverages that were being consumed to excess. And then this young, traditionally veiled woman entered the tent, and the rest is history. For Jacob not to recognize her means it must have been very dark, and maybe he was not on his A game. <laughs> and also, she must not have uttered a word the entire time. I grew up with identical twin sisters. We were in the same bluebird group and went to Barnard together. 
And when I would call their house, I could tell which was Hillary and which was Laura. I could tell the difference. I could look at them and tell which was which, of course, but I could tell the difference in their voices. If you know someone well enough, you can tell who they are by their speaking. So that says to me she was complicit in this ruse. Why was she complicit in the ruse? Maybe she was sweet on Jacob too. Maybe she thought, okay, I'll go in, I'll sneak in. Yes, dad, I'll sneak in there and I'll do what you want me to do because I really love Jacob too. That's extrapolating. But I kind of like the idea. The other idea is just that maybe Laban said, if you mess this up, you are out on your keister. You mess this up, you're as good as dead because I've got to get you off my hands. So why did he want to get her off his hands so, so much? Well, we read in the scripture that there was a cultural tradition that the oldest daughter gets married first. But I go back to this thing about the lovely eyes. Some translations say she had lovely eyes. The NIV says she has weak eyes. Was she like Fanny J. Crosby, completely blind? Was she blind enough that she couldn't do much? Uh, being blind 4,000 years ago was a lot harder on a person than it is now, that, not that it's not hard, but there was no braille, uh, there were no aids for people who were blind. So maybe he thought, you are a liability to me, I've got to get you married off to somebody. So for whatever reason, he wakes up and it says, in the morning, it was Leah. It's a hard task to find God working through the strategies and the wiles of these two foxes. But there is the evidence of God happening. One commentator said, I think it was Terence Fretheim, that the fact that Leah is rewarded in the early years of this marriage with seven children is God rewarding her for what one commentator called the abuse of her father by pushing her into this situation she may not have wanted to go into. We have to remember that this is a story, and many of the stories in the Old Testament and New Testament were written in a time when women were persona non grata. Women didn't have rights. We take so much for granted now. Uh, I certainly do. I take for granted that I can vote, that I can be a minister, uh, that I can drive a car, that I could own my own business if I wanted to. Just two generations ago in my family, um, women couldn't vote. My grandmother Venable was born in 1897. Some of you knew her. She died in the late 80s, uh, but she was born in 1897, and so she was 23 years old before women had the right to vote in this country. So a woman whom I saw at least once a week and who took care of me and who worshiped here with us and uh, helped raise me was someone who had lived most of her life and only after she had become a teacher and gotten married was she able to have the right to vote. When I was 23, I had already voted in two presidential elections. So it's staggering when you think how much things for women have changed in two years. And then you go back a thousand or so generations, multiply that and you know things have changed for women a ton. Incidentally, my grandmother met my grandfather at an all-day singing school. I mean, an all-day singing school, because it was <laughs> in Alabama, and it was that shape note singing that Dr. Pansera was talking about with the Victory in Jesus song. I don't know anything about their courtship other than when my grandfather and his friend walked into the church 
my grandmother turned to her girlfriend and said, I'll take the one in the hat. <laughs> and she did. <laughs> she took the one in the hat, and sometime later, they ran off in the middle of the night and got married, and four years later, my father was born. That's all I know. You know what? My other grandparents ran off in the middle of the night, too. So I come from a long line of elopers. <laughs> my parents had a church wedding, just parents had a church wedding. But she said, I'll take the one in the hat. Leah and Rachel may have had such conversations like, ooh, I'll take the one with the lid of the well, or ooh, he's cute. But they had no vote in the situation. They had no, uh, they had no vote in their marital situation. So just remember that women had no power, and you were nothing unless you had a father, a husband, or a son to look after you. If you did not have a male relative who was taking care of you, you were out on the street, which meant you were as good as dead. Your options were limited. So throughout the New Testament, we have all of this about the widows and the orphans, the widows and the orphans. The widows and the orphans were <clears throat> the poorest people of all. So here we have this beginning story of the 12 tribes of Israel, and it's born out of sharp family conflict and total deception, which maybe Jacob deserved because he had deceived his father and gotten something that belonged to his brother, and now maybe what Laban has done to him are just desserts. Even though this is basically the story of the creation of the 12 tribes of Israel, the author doesn't try to paint a rosy picture of how it was all perfect of, at the start, and can't we get back to that? He's not shy about saying, this was a mess, and this is what we're born from. Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes, is not all bad. He really loves and cares for Rachel, which is probably one of the nobler details of his life. God doesn't choose perfect people to be fathers and mothers of nations or of families, and God makes life possible even in this family that is terribly dysfunctional, rife with conflict. The story is not simply about origins. It reveals the fundamental character of Israel's continuing life with God through the generations. That's Frethheim again. It's about community and the community of faith in every age. And it's about dealing with your family. If you feel like the families in the Bible had it all perfect, they didn't. Their families were just as messed up as everyone else's families were. Local theologian Paula Gradney Garner, who's a part of our church, gave a wonderful devotion this week in staff meeting all about family. She wrote this, have you ever been to a family reunion and wondered how in the world you were part of such an odd group of people? <laughs> Why do some family members seem to share your values and your sense of humor while others are so, well, so not like you? <laughs> not even biblical families had it easy. Sadly, there are some family members we have to let go of or disconnect from for health, safety, or well-being, and that is okay. We can still love them and pray for them. We all are from some type of family. Some of them are wonderful, some not so much. But no matter the content, the structure of your family system, whether by both, I'm sorry, by, by bifocals, whether by birth, by bonus, or by choice, it is you, it is 
these people who've chosen you as family, as you encounter, engage, and even endure your families when you get together with them. Here are a few tips that may help in your connections. When you get together this summer or this fall or around Christmas, share family history, share stories of remember when. Make connections with a family member you're not close to. Try to reconcile with someone you've had bad blood with. Foster intergenerational relationships. Listen to the elders. Encourage bonding of cousins, aunts and uncles, and of the grands. Let people evolve, change, and grow. Most of us are not at all who we used to be. Work for peace together, be thankful together, be joyful together, and pray together. Perfect or imperfect, God needs us and wants us. Anne Lamott says, I do not understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we where it found us. If you are sleeping tonight on a rock and you dream of a ladder going to heaven, <laughs> if your mother tells you that you need to get away from your brother because he's got it out for you, if you wind up with the wrong wife after a wedding, I actually, I don't know what to do about that. Um, <laughs> if you wind up with people in your family who don't get along and are very jealous of each other, have patience, have kindness, pray about it, and know that you're not the first ones to encounter these problems. And we always have a family mediator to whom we can turn, and that is God who loves us no matter what. Amen.